Many uh, Christians have settled into a lifestyle where the whole of our faith is filled with nothing more than the routine of our religion. I mean, when you think about it, we get up and we go to church on a Sunday morning. We maybe pray before meals. If we're extra devout, we may volunteer in some capacity. But that's pretty much it. That is the full extent of our faith. Christianity has become a part of our lives, but I think that that's the issue. It's just a part. We don't give it a whole lot of thought or investment beyond our Sunday morning gathering time. But what if we did? How would we change? How would we live differently if we lived out our faith in such a way that it actually moved from being just a part of our lives to it becoming our everything that drives us? What is it that you want out of your life? At the end of the day, what do you want it to be about? When you finally depleted all your other options and you finally seek that thing that has meaning, can we bring ourselves to a commitment that says, I'm all in? Well, good morning, y'all. Today is a defining moment in the life of our church. This is Commitment Sunday for our Believe campaign. And while the purpose is to raise the necessary dollars uh, that it takes that will have a meaningful impact on the ministry here at Westridge, we believe that this Believe campaign has even a greater spiritual impact on you, on me, and even on the life of this church. And so as Greg said, I want all of you to know who are visiting with us or who are just kind of sticking your toe in the water here at Westridge, this is not for you. However, I think that it will still be inspiring to see people who are just like you, who were in the same position that you are two, three years ago, and who are now at a place where they've been so transformed by the love of God that they actually want to participate in this time of commitment. And so for the last four weeks or so, we've been on this journey. And it's been a journey of prayer and of faith, a journey of sacrifice and generosity. But most of all, it's been a journey of life change, which leads up and all rolls up into this moment of commitment. And that's why we've called this All In Sunday. Now, I grew up as a uh, pastor's kid where... Uh, playing cards were outlawed in my home because they were a little bit of the devil. So it's a little ironic for me to be doing a sermon where I'm borrowing a poker term as a way to describe a spiritual commitment. So I'm glad my mom is not sitting in the audience intimidating me this morning. But it has a lot of relevance to what we're talking about today. So listen to the definition of being all in as it relates to poker. A 
all in, being all in is a player who is faced with a current bet who wishes to call but has insufficient resources to match the offer on the table. He may bet the remainder of his or her stake, thus betting everything they have left and declare themselves all in. I think that is the perfect definition for what we're talking about today because in the game of life, we can bet on a lot of things. We can bet on family, we can bet on career, we can bet on wealth, we can bet on a lot of things. But the question is, what is the one thing that you believe in more than anything else? What is the one thing that is worth betting everything you have left and declaring yourself all in on that one thing? In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19, Jesus runs into this kind of very powerful CEO type of a guy who has built incredible wealth in a very short period of time. But he soon realizes after he makes it that it still wasn't enough for him. That there are still things that he does not have covered. And so he comes to Jesus in verse 16 of Matthew 19 and he comes to him directly and he asks him this question. Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? This guy realized that there was something missing in his life. He had everything covered except for one thing. When he dies... He knows he can't take all that with him. And he wants to know what the end game is. He's not wealthy enough to cover his death. And he wants to know, what is it going to take Jesus? He's a business guy. He's ready to make a deal. What does it take Jesus to get eternal life? And Jesus responds. He says, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. And if you want to enter life then you must obey the commandments. Now, it's interesting because Jesus didn't respond immediately by directly answering his question and showing him the way of salvation because this man was missing one essential quality and Jesus knew it. He identified it right from the beginning. He didn't get the fact that he was a sinner, just like everybody else. He felt like, hey, I'm a good person, I lead a good life, and now I want to know what does it take to get eternal life. And so Jesus baits the man a little bit to make his point, and luckily the man takes the bait and jumps right in. He says, well, Jesus, which commandments? Which commandments do I have to take? Come on, tell me, which commandments do I have to to keep in order to get eternal life? And Jesus looks at him and says, well, (laughs) all ten. It seems to me, though, however, that Jesus is making a little bit of a mistake here, doesn't it? Doesn't it seem like Jesus is teaching this man the wrong way to get into heaven? It's like a works thing. It's against everything we've been taught about we're saved by grace through faith. It certainly seems that in this passage that Jesus is saying, if you keep these commandments, then you'll be saved. Doesn't it? Actually, what Jesus is trying to communicate to the man, and what the man wasn't getting, was that nobody is able to keep all the commandments perfectly. 
Nobody is able to live the perfect life that it requires to get into heaven. Nobody. No matter how good he thinks he is, he's not good enough. And yet still, the rich man says in verse 20, he says, hey Jesus, I've kept them all. What else you got? His view of his relationship with God was completely superficial. He thought that because he was not a liar or a cheat, and because he showed up at temple at all the right times, and because he led a good life, he was virtually perfect in the eyes of God. And I'm sure he was thinking to himself why God should feel lucky to have me in his heaven. All he wanted from Jesus was just another commandment, just another formula whereby he could complete his religious obligations and earn his way into heaven so that he could check that box and move on and earn more money like he was wanting to do. But what he didn't get is that eternal life are for those of us who realize we are so not perfect. We are sinners. We can't do it on our own. And we need Jesus. And so after it becomes obvious the man has too thick of a skull for Jesus to get through, he drops the atomic bomb on the man. And in verse 21, he says, Okay, if you want to be perfect, which is the entrance requirement to get into heaven, then go and sell all of your possessions and give it all to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. What Jesus is really saying is, I don't care about your wealth. I don't care about your success. I don't care about how powerful you are. I really don't even care how religious you are. I just want one thing. I want your heart. And this was the one way for Jesus to cut to the chase and get to brass tacks so that the man knew exactly where he stood with God, exactly where his heart was. And verse 22 is probably one of the saddest verses in the entire Bible where it says, when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus asked him to go all in. But he wasn't able to let go of the stuff of this world that he was clinging onto so tightly. The wealth that he thought he owned, owned him. And he would rather cling on to his stuff rather than to hold the hand of Jesus. Here was a man who had everything going for him. He said and did all the right things. He was a successful businessman. He was a moral person. He was very religious, but he couldn't bring himself to give God the one thing that God requires of all of us. His heart. He came to Jesus for eternal life to figure out what would happen when he died and he left without it, even though it was right there. 
Now, in most sermons that I've heard pastors preach on this text, I hear now that they start beating this poor guy up, saying what a bad man he is and how terrible it is that he would have done this. But I can't help but wonder if it was me standing there and Jesus was looking at me and he says, Darren, are you willing to give everything up to follow me? What would I do? What would you do? Could you do it? Would we have really done anything differently than the man who walked away sad that day because Jesus asked him for the one thing he couldn't give? Because it requires everything. What is it that prevents you from being all in with God? And I'm not naive enough to believe that it's all about money because all of us have different things that we treasure. But what is it for you? What is it that if Jesus looked into your heart, what would he see is taking up so much room in your heart that it has crowded God right out of your life? In direct contrast to that story, there's a story in the Bible that shows what it looks like for somebody who is all in. And in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, starting with verse 41, Jesus was sitting with his disciples in the temple near the place where people bring up their offerings. And in that day and that age, everyone would file forward and they'd bring their offering so that everybody in the whole world could see what you're giving. So Jesus found himself in a place where he could see what all these people are giving. And it was apparent that there was all of these wealthy people who were dropping huge amounts of money into the offering and, by the way, making sure that everybody knew it. But there was this poor widow that came forward. And you could just tell that this woman didn't have a thing in this world that she could call her own. And she comes forward with all these rich people. And you can almost see them looking down on her, can't you? Like, what's she going to give? Like, she's not good enough. And she walks forward and she drops these two very small coins into the offering. And the Bible says that those two coins were worth just pennies by today's standards. But those coins, they could have paid for her next meal. Jesus sees an opportunity to teach his disciples about what it means to be all in. And he gathers them together and he says this, Truly, I tell you the truth. This poor widow has put more into the offering than all the others. Because they gave out of their wealth. But she, out of her poverty, put in everything. All that she had to live on. That passage is not about money. That passage is about what it looks like to be all in for Jesus. 
It takes me back to that definition, the poker definition of being all in, when it says that when you don't have the resources to match the offer on the table, you can put everything that you have left and declare yourself all in. We will never have the resources to match the offer that God has given us of his grace, ever. There is nothing that can match that. But we can be all in. Sacrificial giving is when we become so overwhelmed with love and gratitude for what God has done for us that we give an extravagant gift that is meaningful to us. And that poor widow was so overwhelmed by the love of God that she sacrificed everything to show her gratitude. Jesus put it like this. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And the question is, what do you treasure more than anything else in this world? This is where the idea of giving comes in. Because when we let go of our money and we give it away, it actually keeps our heart in check as to where we're at in our relationship with God. It's a weekly reminder that says, everything that I work my rear off week in and week out will not last. And in the end, we can't take it with us. It helps us to let go of the things that seem so important to us now that in the end will have no value at all. And that's what this commitment time is all about. We see it as an opportunity to challenge ourselves into an all-in moment where we're willing to make a sacrifice of something in order to let go of the stuff of this world so that we can fill ourselves with the stuff of God. In your program, you'll find a commitment card. If you take that out just now, It's uh, found in a white envelope that's in your program. If you go ahead and grab that. And it's in the envelope, so you can take that out of the envelope. And we'd like you to continue. We hope that you have been, and we want you to continue to pray for how it is that you'll fill that card out. But before you do, I want to remind you of a few things. First of all, this commitment is an above and beyond commitment, which means that when we give on a regular basis, we don't want to disrupt that because that's meaningful for the church. So what we're asking for is a commitment that is above and beyond our regular giving. The second thing is this is a three-year commitment, and it's an amount that you can give weekly. It's an amount that you can give monthly. It's an amount that you can give just one-time gift but that it would be given over a three-year period to fulfill your commitment. The next thing is that your commitment is completely confidential. Other than a few members of the campaign staff, no one will know what your commitment is. We're not going to display it on the screen and put all the top givers or anything like that. Your commitment, when you're done filling it out, you put it back in the envelope, seal it up, and your commitment will remain between you and God where it should be. 
Your commitment should be something that you feel good about. We don't want it to be a thing where you feel resentful. We want it to be something that you feel cheerful about, that you do with a sense of joy every time that you write that check, that it's meaningful for you to do. We don't want a year from now to say, I can't believe I made that commitment. I'm just now like paying this thing off. That's not where our heart is. Our heart is where that we want to give something that is meaningful for us. And if you can't give it with a sense of joy, then we ask that you don't give. Also, this is not about equal giving. It's about equal sacrifice. In other words, everybody has different economic situations. And like the widow we just described, it is not about how big your gift is. None of us have the resources to match the offer on the table, which is the grace of God. We can't give a gift big enough to match that. It's not about that. It's about how meaningful it is for you. It was really cool because a couple weeks ago, as we talked about last week, 42 individuals and families who love Westridge said, I'll go first, and they committed over $620,000, which is amazing. And there's about 400 of us who are our regular attenders, so we have the opportunity to blow all of our goals and all of our dreams away about this. And so in just a moment, the band is going to play, and we're going to ask that during that time, you prayerfully consider what it is that you want to commit. And then after that song is done, you're going to have the opportunity to fill out that card if you haven't done so already. But here's what I want to say before we do that. This all-in moment for us as a church builds on everything else that God has done for us. When you look back on our 16-year history, you can't help but be blown away about how God has been involved in every single step of the life of this church. And this commitment time is going to allow us as a church to be more freed up to reach more people for God to be freed up to expand our ministries that I believe will change people's lives for the rest of eternity, and it will allow us as a church to be more generous. And I want you to know that I'm a volunteer here. I don't take any money. This is not anything that relates back to me. But I want you to know that I do this because I have seen that Westridge is the real deal. The things that are wrong with religion that I hate is what is right with Westridge. Because this is a place that is meaningful. And we have a chance to invest in something that will change this church forever. When we finally understand, and this is really for those of us who aren't at a place in our relationship with God where we really get what's going on here, I just want to say this. As you grow and as we grow in our relationship with God, there comes a point where we have experienced the love of God to the point that we are completely blown away by it. We are completely changed by it, and our desire is to be all in. To have the kind of faith where we are consumed by it and we are passionate about it until it drives everything else that we do in our lives, even to the point of giving up everything to have it. As many of you know, I'm a skeptic by nature. And 
I was without my relationship with God for several years, where I studied other world, relig- other world religions. I looked for alternatives to the Christian faith because the way that I was raised, I didn't relate to the Christian faith. Christianity is not something that comes natural for me. It's a faith that literally I had to build with my own two hands. And so when there are people who are opposed to the Christian faith, I understand it. I don't get defensive about it. I don't argue about it. I want to hear what they have to say. And one person who has been incredibly vocal in his opposition to the Christian faith is a guy by the name of Adam Carolla. I don't know if you know him, but he's a TV personality, comedian, has radio show. And I heard him on a radio show not too long ago as I was driving, where this atheist, and he's a self-professed atheist, this atheist gave probably the most passionate appeal for Christianity that I've ever heard in my life. And I was moved to tears by the things that he said. And so when the topic of religion came up, he said this, The first thing I know for sure is this. We're all going to die. And when we die, there is nothing else out there. He said, and it freaks us out. And we don't know how to deal with it. And he said, so we lie to ourselves. And we create this notion of God so that we can deal with it. And we have something that we can look forward to beyond the grave. And he said, I wish I was that weak to be able to have a faith like that. And then he caught himself. And he said, let me rephrase that. I don't want to offend anybody. He said, I wish I had faith enough to believe in God. I wish my parents, who were both atheists, raised me to have a faith where I could believe in a place like heaven. A place where you go after you die and you see everyone you've ever loved as you walk through those pearly gates. Even your old dog that died when you were a kid comes up and licks your boots when you walk in and you live happily ever after. He said, I wish I had a faith like that. He said, I'd give a million bucks for that kind of faith. He said, for me, that goes way beyond sports cars or having my big house or a lot of money. He said, that would mean more to me than any of those things. That would be the greatest gift you could ever have. And he stopped for a moment and it got real silent. And then he said, I'd give up everything for that. I don't think there's a Christian out there who could have said it more powerfully than he did. And I hope that someday he can bring himself to find the faith that I think he so obviously desires. But I think that he certainly gets even more than a lot of us Christians who take this thing for granted. I think he gets one thing better than us. That our faith is worth everything. It is more precious than anything else we could ever have. 
in the middle of the night when you're all alone and it's quiet and you look inside your heart and you ask yourself the question, do you believe? And when you come face to face with Jesus and he looks at you back and he says, will you give up everything for me? What will you say? And in that moment, in your heart, when you ask yourself, is it worth it? I'll defer to the words of an atheist who said, I'd give up everything for that. I can't tell you how many times I've stood in the presence of God and not felt Him. And how can we stand in the presence of his love and not be moved by what he's done for us. The last thing I'll say to you about the commitment that you're about to make is that I can promise that no matter what it is that you decide to commit to, that you will have no regrets about that three years from now. That as you look back you'll know that that was worth everything you gave. 